You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at Grab a Bible. If you don't have one with you, there should be one in the pew somewhere near you. Grab it. We want you to have God's word open in front of you. Um, I have nothing to say. Um, we come together to look at God's word and to hear uh, his truth this morning. So um, grab that Bible. Turn to Colossians chapter 4. Um, read a great little story this week, and I think uh, most of us can identify with it at some level. I know I sure can. Um, when I was growing up, I was somebody. I, w- I was really somebody. If my dad said, somebody wash the dishes or somebody wop the floor or somebody get some firewood, I knew I was somebody. Anybody else grow up as a somebody? Uh, I think we've all been there. Um, but of course, then we want to grow up to be somebody, right? Um, not quite the same way. We want, to, we want to make a difference. We want to do something that matters. We want our, our lives to be significant, make an impact on this world. I think we all felt that. We all still feel it. And that's what I found most encouraging and hopeful as I read through these last few verses of the book of Colossians, um, ending our journey this morning through this book. Um, so I think it's easy for us to see Paul. And his just amazing example and all the things that God did through him. And we're rightly amazed by it, but but can also become a little bit overwhelming, can't it? I I will never be a Paul. I'm not going to reach that level. I'm not going to do any of the things that he did. And so it can be discouraging. And in fact, I think, though I maybe appear to have the right uh, first name, I'm I'm not even going to get listed among the the John MacArthur, John Piper, John Owen, John Bunyan, John Calvin, name your John, um, the list of Johns in history. I'm just going to be this this footnote, maybe. History is not going to remember my name. And you know what? I'm okay with that. That doesn't... That doesn't bother me. I'm actually quite content uh, in in the ironically remembered words of uh, reformer Count Zinzendorf uh, to preach, die, and be forgotten. At least as far as this world is concerned. Because unlike Hollywood, God's church doesn't have extras, right? You know what I mean? Hollywood has the, the A-list actors, the big-time guys who get the, the big bucks and their name shows up on the movie poster. And then there's this, this, this ocean of people whose names don't even make it into the end credits of the movie. They're totally unknown. These last few verses of the book of Colossians, we get a, a glimpse behind the scenes in the church. And we see that even though God used Paul in these remarkable, amazing ways to do some amazing things, he was also at the same time using 
a whole bunch of people to do really different things, radically different people with different gifts, serving the church, building the church. And, and history may not remember these people. We get to see them here as kind of this footnote, this addendum to this book. But the Lord knows who they are. They are somebody in the church. They, they made a difference in the, the local body of believers. And, and Paul mentions this list of names at the end of his letter. We get a glimpse of what it means to, to be somebody in the church. Maybe not somebody that history remembers, but certainly someone the Lord remembers. Somebody who was faithful. Somebody who actually made a difference in the church in their own unique way. So these verses, we're going to see uh, 10 different people. And, and it's hard to kind of categorize this too rigidly, but we'll do our best to kind of roughly speaking, I think we can uh, identify four key ways that they served the church. Four ways to be somebody in the church. Um, certainly not an exhaustive list by any means, um, but I hope this morning our, our view is just expanded a little bit, a little bigger vision of what it means to be somebody in God's church. So let me read these verses for us, and then, uh, and then we'll work through them together. So Colossians chapter 4, we'll start in verse 7. We're going all the way to 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you've received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, they are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greeting to the brothers at Laodicea, to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read in the church of Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hands. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Pray with me. Father, thank you. Thank you for the glory of who you are. Thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to gather with the saints, to magnify your name, to have our eyes lifted up again, to see a, a renewed vision of your awesome glory. Lord, now we come to your word. Let us be humble before it. God, you know our hard hearts. You know our dull ears. Help us. 
Help us to submit to your truth. Help us to love your word, to not only be hearers of your word, but doers of it. And God, you know my insufficiency and my weakness. Would you use me? Loose my tongue to speak your truth, O God. That your name may be lifted up, that your church might be molded and shaped and conformed um, to your word, to the image of your son, to the glory of your name, we pray. So let's take verses 7 to 9 as the first chunk here. And we see that somebody in the church should be an encourager. Somebody in the church should be an encourager. There are two names listed in these verses, Tychicus and Onesimus. I want to just, as we go through, introduce you to each of these people a little bit. We get kind of a glimpse of who they are, where they're coming from, um, how different they are. Tychicus uh, is mentioned five times in the New Testament. Um, He's a Gentile, a Greek, um, probably from Ephesus. Uh, And he joined Paul um, traveling from Macedonia to Jerusalem at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. So Paul's on his way back uh, and and, uh, Tychicus joins him. That would have been about five years before this book was written. Uh, And it seems that he's been with Paul ever since. There's kind of been this growing crowd following behind Paul. You'll get a sense of that as we go through these names. And so it makes sense that Paul calls him a, a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. They've been working together for some time now. He's one of Paul's kind of right hand men. Onesimus, on the other side, is radically different. He is a newcomer, brand new on the scene. Um, He was not a a long-standing servant of Paul, um, which is what you would kind of expect to to make it into this greeting. Um, But there's something else going on here. Onesimus was actually a slave, a runaway slave. um, And he showed up in Rome, where he seems to have met Paul, who was already in prison. And it looks like it was Paul who led him to Christ. And so he's this brand new believer. Um, The book of Philemon is actually Paul's letter to Onesimus' owner who is from the church in Colossae. So he's encouraging Philemon to to forgive Onesimus and to to welcome him back, not, not as a slave, but as a beloved brother. So you see how the Lord doesn't just use this kind of this man of stature with, with history and, and status in the church and a Bible college degree, you see that he also uses broken people with a checkered past. People who are brand new to the church who have just recently come to faith. And what is exactly these, these two are doing? Um, practically speaking, they're, they're letter carriers. Um, these were the ones taking this letter to the Colossians, um, and and the letter to the Ephesians, and the letter to Philemon from Rome to their various destinations. But that wasn't their only job. Paul repeats it twice. Um, Verse 9, he says, they will tell you everything that has taken place. And verse 8, I sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are. So they're updating these churches as well. 
telling them everything that's happened with Paul and, and, and doing that for a stated purpose, and that's the end of verse 8, so that he may encourage your hearts. These two men are going back to Colossae, and their job is to encourage the hearts of the believers there, telling them what they'd seen, what they had experienced, what, what God had been doing in Rome. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, um, we're commanded. Therefore, encourage one another, build one another up, just as you're doing. It doesn't matter if you've been following Jesus for 30 years and have a master degree in theology, or if you just came to Christ yesterday. You want to be somebody in the church? You want to have an impact? Encourage the people around you. Encourage them. And, and, and one of the most powerful ways we do that is just by sharing what God has done. Just pointing to the, to the work of Christ in us. Maybe you think, I don't know that I can do that. I don't know if I can do that well. I don't know if I have anything to say. Um, tell you this, as someone who literally grew up in the church, like, I mean, Every time the church doors were open, my family was there from before I can remember. Um, someone who literally does have a master's degree in theology. I think back over the last six years here, serving in Olds. Hmm. You know what I was encouraged the most? You know, one that just really sticks out to me? John Flood. I see a bunch of heads nodding because you knew it. You felt it. For those of you who didn't know him, John was a drug addict and a thief and a mess. He came into our church desperate and afraid and broken. He had just been introduced to Jesus. He didn't know a thing about the Bible. And nothing was more encouraging than to sit down with John because he would just overflow with the goodness of God and the kindness of his grace and the wonder of salvation. It was, it was not theologically articulate. It was honest. It was real. It was straight from the heart. It doesn't take a depth of knowledge and, and fancy words or years of experience. It just takes that, that bravery to be honest, willingness to be transparent and vulnerable, to just share with people. This is what God has done. Look where I came from. Look what I used to be, and, and I'm not that person anymore. Christ died for me. Can you believe it? Share with other people what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing. Um, to be somebody in the church starts right there, encouraging others with what God has done. Secondly, we move into verses 10 and 11. We meet three more people, and we see that another way to be somebody in the church uh, somebody in the church should be a comforter, a comforter. Look at um, verses 10, 11. Let me read them for us. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they've been a comfort to me. In these verses, we meet Aristarchus and Mark and Justice. Aristarchus, we know from the book of Acts, 
Um, like Tychicus, he was a longtime companion to Paul. Um, he was from the town of Thessalonica in Macedonia. And he joined Paul as well on this third missionary journey. And he was with Paul then during the, the riots in Jerusalem where Paul was arrested. And he followed Paul from there now to Rome, staying faithfully by his side. Mark, uh, the cousin of Barnabas, um, throughout Scripture, he's also called John Mark. Um, Paul and Mark go way back, um, actually before Paul's first missionary journey, um, Mark was in Antioch. Um, so this is probably 14 years before this was written when they first met. Um, but Paul and Mark have a bit of a, a checkered relationship history. He started out with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Like this is groundbreaking stuff. They are sent out from Antioch going, hey, you know what? We need to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We're heading out. And, and Mark was right there going with them. Um, but when the going got tough, Mark got up and went home. He checked out. I'm done. Too much. Not going there. He deserted the mid-trip. And so then on the second missionary journey, Barnabas, always the encourager, um, said, hey, we should bring Mark along. Let's give him a second chance. And Paul said, no way, not going to do it. Remember, he, he, he ditched us last time. And they actually had what, what Acts calls a sharp disagreement over it. Man, Mark must have felt like a heel. How small. Mark went off then with Barnabas and Paul went on his second missionary trip. And uh, then Mark came back to Jerusalem, spent some time there with Peter. And, and, and through that time, uh, he grew, he, he matured. And, and though he once had messed up, had let Paul down, had, had failed in what God had called him to do, uh, he was restored. He was brought back into the ministry alongside Paul. Uh, and it was Mark that ended up writing the gospel of Mark. He recorded the stories of Jesus that he would have heard from Peter when he was in Jerusalem. And then in Paul's last letter, 2 Timothy, knowing that his days were coming to an end, uh, he wrote this to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.1, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark, bring him with you. For he's very useful to me for ministry. That's how Mark felt then. <sighs> I'm useful. I think he knew it by then. I think he and Paul had a, a pretty significant relationship. Having seen Mark fall and sin and fail and then be restored again, um, they, they had this bond together. Thirdly, verse 11, um, we see Jesus, who's called justice, which we can, I think, understand. You can get the confusion that might be in that day and age to have the name Jesus and, and somebody yelling out, hey, Jesus is coming back. And, and everyone looks at, no, no, not that. It's not trumpets and the sky peeling open. It's just, it's just Jesus that we call justice coming back with the groceries, right? Um, and so they, they kind of change his name. He goes by his Latin surname, Justice. And other than what Paul tells us here, um, that he's also a Jew, this is really all we know about him. Um, so these three men, Paul says, were the only Jews who followed, uh, who were fellow workers with him, uh, and, and that was a great comfort to him. Now, he doesn't tell us exactly what that comfort is, but I think we can make some deductions. Um, I think some of it is, is at very least that, that these men were Jews who were fellow servants 
with him. Uh, after so many Jews had rejected the gospel, after so many of the Jewish leaders were the ones initiating the persecution against Paul. Um, but I think it goes deeper than that. Again, of, of, of Jesus called justice, we, we don't know anything. Um, but Barnabas, we know, had a long personal relationship with Paul. He'd been, they'd been through some stuff together. And then Aristarchus in verse 10, Paul calls my fellow prisoner. Now it may be that Aristarchus was literally in prison with Paul at some point, maybe in Ephesus or in Jerusalem. Um, but I think more likely is that Paul's using this metaphorically, that Aristarchus is sharing in Paul's prison experience. That he's so close with Paul that he's he's bearing Paul's burden. He is living through a, a prison existence with Paul. And that's a comfort to him. These men are walking with Paul, shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, strengthening, supporting one another through these trials. Walking through it, side by side. Do you have those kinds of relationships in your life? People who not only know about your struggles and trials, but who will walk through them with you, who will help bear those burdens with you. And are you the kind of person willing to stick it out with someone who's hurting, to sit with them, to weep with them, to, to sacrifice your time and your comfort and your peace in order to bear someone else's trouble? To be somebody in the church is to live this way. And I think as North Americans, we don't do this well. I have my problems, you have yours. We'll just keep it that way. And how many times I find people who are struggling with a burden and they won't let you in to help. No, no, we got this. It's okay. We're doing our thing. It's tough, but we'll make it through. Don't, don't do it. Don't do it. Allow people in. We need to get better at that, church. We need to let people help us. I don't want to be a burden. No, be the burden. Let them bear your burden with you. We need to have these kinds of meaningful, transparent, bearing one another's burdens kinds of relationships. And and I know I've said it before, and I will say it again. Um, that is a big part of the heart behind why we do small groups, because this is important, because this matters. Uh, we want to create a context where, where you can just regularly sit down with a small group of, of trusted brothers and sisters, sharing your struggles and your victories and building rapport and, and, and forging relationships with those kind of deeper spiritual bonds so that you can comfort one another, so that we can be doing this. We were talking just this last week as elders, and, and actually um, we had a few ministry leaders join us talking about what are they, what are they seeing and how's ministry going. And, and, and one of the things that's just been really big on our radar as of late uh, is, is as we grow, and, and we've grown significantly over the last couple of years, um, it's easy to welcome people in and, and to, to greet people and get to know their name and, and to help them feel comfortable, um, it's a lot harder to move people from, from there to a committed, connected, part of the family kind of relationship. Getting connected into a small group is one of the key pieces of that transition. Um, 
And so if you've been coming for a little while and you feel like, I just feel like I'm still kind of on the outside. I don't know how to, I don't know how to break in. Small group is a great window. I hope, I hope we learn to, to, to make that as seamless and smooth a transition as ever. But small group is a great tool that we can use. Um, time to just talk with people. And so um, connect with somebody that you've connected with here on Sunday mornings. You are more than welcome to join their small group. That's part of their covenant that they've agreed together is that they will welcome in new people. Or come talk to me. Um, I can lay out the options of what, where groups meet and when, and we can figure out what works best. Happy to do that. Thrilled to do that. And if you're a long timer here, let's be intentional in that. Not just welcoming newcomers kind of the first few Sundays. That's, that's great. Let's keep doing that. Let's grow in that. But, but welcoming them into our small groups and, and into our lives. Sharing this journey of faith together. Ready to, to bear one of those burdens. So somebody in the church should be an encourager. And somebody in the church should be a comforter. Thirdly, uh, verses 12 to 14. We meet uh, three more people. And we see somebody in the church should be a prayer. So follow along as I read, starting verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Demas. So I said three more men introduced here. Epaphras, we talked about uh, as we started this letter to Colossians. Um, Paul says he's one of you because Epaphras is from Colossae. In fact, he's probably the founder of the church there. Uh, he was probably uh, saved um, in Ephesus on, on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, he spent two years preaching in Ephesus and, uh, and Epaphras probably was there, went to hear him, and, and then left to proclaim the gospel and plant a church in Colossae. And it was Epaphras who had traveled then from Colossae to Rome now um, to talk with Paul, to tell him what was going on at the church in Colossae. And that's why Paul's writing this letter, responding to some of the struggles and the dangers that they were facing. And so he's their pastor. Paul honors him, calling him a, a servant of Christ Jesus. Uh, and then down in verse 14, um, we get this brief mention of two others, Luke and Demas. Luke, the beloved physician. I told Jared, I'm just going to start referring to him as my beloved physician from here on out. Um, this is the same Luke who wrote the Gospel of Luke uh, in the book of Acts. Um, he's a medical doctor. Um, his level of education shows up in his writing. He's very precise and, and uh, polished and cultured. Um, if you remember, Luke set out to kind of write a, a trustworthy eyewitness account of all these things. There are all these stories floating around about Jesus and the things he did and said, and, and Luke set out to like put it down. I'm going to figure out the truth, sort out the stories, get it from the eyewitness account and write it down. And, and that's what he did. That's the gospel of Luke. Uh, and then he continued to follow now the, the disciples and the church as it, as it grew and formed. Um, and that's the book of Acts. But as he talked with these eyewitness and, and primary sources, eventually he became one of them. It's pretty cool, actually. If you're, if you're 
reading carefully Acts 16, there's this awesome little switch that takes place. Um, Verses 6 to 8, five times Luke uses the word they. Talking about Paul and his companions. They went out, what they did. And then very subtly, Luke is kind of a humble guy. He doesn't, doesn't make a big deal of it. But verse 10, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See it? We, we went? God called us? He, he's part of it. Luke has, grown, has joined this, this missionary band. He, he's become part of his own story. So here he is now having stayed by Paul's side all the way to Rome. We know that Paul had uh, some medical problems. Um, he had issues with his eyes. Um, he, uh, the the thorn, in his, thorn in his flesh may have been a physical ailment of some kind. We don't know. Um, he had accumulated numerous injuries. You think of all the beatings and stonings. I, I mean, I'm sure the man woke up in pain every day. And Luke is there ministering to him as kind of his personal physician. Um, sometimes ministry in the church, uh, service to the Lord can be really practical. Using your skills, your talents, your, your trade, serving fellow believers. That's a beautiful thing. Demas, on the other hand, is a sadder story. He was with Paul through the, the first portion of his imprisonment. But in, in Paul's later imprisonment, 2 Timothy 4, 9 and 10, Paul says this to Timothy, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone into Thessalonica. Heartbreaking. Demas, my brother. I mean, he's, he's important enough to Paul. He's, he's included in the greeting of this letter. Turned out to be what Jesus had warned about, a, a seed sown among the thorns. As Jesus talked about the, the spread of the gospel going out like seed cast out. Um, and various people respond in, in different ways. Luke 8, 14, he says this, as for what fell, the, the seeds, the gospel that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life, and their fruit does not mature. So even Paul thought Demas to be a true believer, a brother in the faith, He heard the gospel, he he responded with some outward action, but in time, as he went on his way, was choked out. The pleasures of this world came back, grabbing hold of his heart, showing that, that his true love was never Christ. His true love had always been the pleasures of this world. It's a somber reminder. Not everyone who claims the name of Christ today will continue on with him to the end. That even in the church, even in the company of the Apostle Paul himself, there are tares, there are weeds mixed in among the wheat. Our first takeaway ought to be, I need to know that's not me. I need to check my own heart. That I'm not a a Demas who has this kind of outward show, but still really in love with the world. 2 Corinthians 13.5 it says, examine yourselves to see whether you be in the faith. Test yourselves. You do not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, 
unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Test yourselves. Check my own heart, the depth of my conviction, my commitment to Christ. Our second response then is to look around us. Pay attention to the brothers and sisters that we rub shoulders with as we encourage and comfort. We're, we're, we're guarding. Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. Yes, you are. Take care. Be on guard. Be watchful that, there, that, that none of you, that no one around you um, falls in this unbelieving heart that would lead you to fall astray. Watch each other's backs. On the lookout. If anyone around us shows signs of, of sliding back into the world, we're there to say, hey, no, no, turn to Christ. Don't go that way. This path leads to death. We exhort them, we implore them, we we encourage them, cling to Christ. And that brings us back to Epaphras. We don't only do this with our words, with our actions, but also with our prayers. Somebody in the church should be a prayer. Epaphras was always struggling on their behalf in his prayers. What a, what a great picture. And I think it's significant. His prayers may have included something along the lines of you know, health struggles and job troubles and whatever he was aware of, but the defining feature of his prayer is verse 12. Is that he prayed that they would stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. That's, that's a significant prayer life. That's what dominated his prayers for them. So he didn't just say, I'll pray for you and and walk away and forget. And nor did he settle with praying, God bless Jim. But he's struggling in it. He's working hard for them in prayer, praying for their spiritual condition, for growth and maturity in the Lord, for obedience to his will. That's hard work. That's, that's spiritual warfare right there. That takes grit and energy and effort, and determination. But there's a flip side. Anybody can do it. You know, th- this isn't some special gifting that you need to have. Anybody can do it. Anyone can sit down and just, just make a list. Let me start with the people in your small group. The people you rub shoulders with on Sunday. Maybe just... Open up the church app and flip over to the church directory and work through. And then just open your Bible and read. As you read about what the Lord calls us to to do and to be and to know, just pray that for that person. Once again, the history books will never take note. Nobody maybe even would ever know. But the Lord will hear those prayers. The Lord will answer those prayers and he will answer them as he builds his church. And you'll have been somebody in the church. You'll have had an impact in the church of Jesus Christ. Somebody in the church ought to be an encourager, a comforter, and a prayer. Finally, verses 15 to 17, we meet 
last three people. And we see somebody in the church should be a teacher. 15 to 17. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea, to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you've received from the Lord. So Paul's now sending his own greetings um, through the Colossians to another church, the church at Laodicea. Um, Laodicea is about 15 kilometers down the road from Colossae. And I love to see this. This is, this is an example of the early churches network together. This is like the, the, the budding GCC happening on the ground. Um, autonomous churches working together, encouraging one another. The brothers at Laodicea is a, is a reference to the, to the whole church. Don't let, you th- don't let them throw you off. That's just a cultural difference. If you wrote it today, you probably would have said brothers and sisters. Um, and he expands on that. Who, is this, who, who are these brothers in, in Laodicea? Well, it's the church. The church that meets at the house of a lady named Nympha. Now, there's been some debate over the years. Um, some manuscripts say Nymphos as a a man's name, others say Nympha. Um, it seems that the oldest and best manuscripts have uh, a feminine name there. Um, it's likely that she was a wealthy widow or something along those lines. Uh, and she has a house big enough to just host the church. It's fairly common in those days. Uh, and so there's maybe another um, somebody in the church, a bonus one in the middle here. Uh, somebody in the church would be hospitable. She's just serving the church in a very practical way, opening up her home, making people feel welcome. Some ways, this is like our connecting, um, who greet and welcome people every Sunday morning. This is like those who serve in hospitality, who are preparing communion and putting on coffee and caring for those things. This is those who are willing to open up their home for small groups to come and, and meet in your living room. Simple as those of you who are willing to say, hey, why don't you guys come over for dinner this week? It's a great way to serve the body, to build up the church. This is a spiritual act of of service, a way of strengthening the church just to have a a meal together, have some fun together. Uh, Kyle, Beth said, yes, we're on our way over this afternoon. Thanks, bro. Sermon illustration right there. Be intentional in that. Pick a Sunday. Say, you know what, one Sunday a month, we're going to have another family over in our house and and just make nachos or a pot of soup or whatever and just enjoy each other's company. Get to know each other. that's That's a significant spiritual act of worship and service to the church as we just get to know one another better. It's a beautiful thing. That's Nympha, the church at her house. And then we meet Archippus. And about Archippus, uh, we know very little. Um, We have this verse here, which is not overly clear, um, but it seems that that Archippus is a leader in the church in Colossae. Um, He has a ministry from the Lord in the church that he needs to fulfill. And the only other time he's mentioned in Scripture is in that letter to Philemon, who was the the owner of Onesimus, the runaway slave. Uh, And so... That letter is carried alongside Colossians. Um, Philemon is just one chapter, and so it's just Philemon verse 2 says this. Paul says to Philemon, Greet uh, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, 
and the church in your house. So much like Nympha and Laodicea, um, Philemon has opened his home to the church there. Um, and it seems that Archippus, being called a fellow soldier here and, and told to fulfill his ministry to the Lord in Colossians, is something along the lines of a pastor in the church. Makes sense that this encouragement comes in the context of passing around these letters. His ministry is most likely a ministry of the word. Now, there's a little bit of debate about this letter to the Laodiceans that's mentioned here. You can flip through your Bible. You won't find the, the epistle to the Laodiceans. It's not there. Um, there are a couple of theories about that. The first theory is fairly simple, and that's just that the letter to the Laodiceans was lost. It's, it's just gone. We don't have it. Uh, it wasn't copied and preserved like the letter to the Colossians was, uh, and that's entirely possible. And, and, and that might make you a little bit uncomfortable, and it shouldn't. Um, we know that not everything Paul wrote was Scripture, or ended up in our Bibles. Um, chapter 5 and verse 9 of the book that we call 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. What letter? This is 1 Corinthians, right? Well, no. 1 Corinthians was at least the second letter that Paul had written, written to the Corinthians. We just don't have that letter or those letters. And who knows how many other letters Paul wrote that were simply lost? I would guess quite a few. And, and that shouldn't be particularly troubling to us. Um, obviously, not everything Paul wrote uh, was intended to be preserved for the church for all time. And if you think about it, it only makes sense that Peter and John also wrote more letters to other churches, probably the other 10 apostles too. Letter writing was incredibly common in that day. But not all of it was intended as scripture. The writings that God intended for us were preserved, were copied, were collected, began to be passed around, kind of rose to the top of importance um, and, and were collected together and cherished by the church and we have them today. So we talk about missing letters as if there's some scandal behind it and what's the church hiding and it's much ado about nothing. Um, the writings that we actually do have that aren't in the Bible are just so obviously fraudulent. Um, the gospel of Judas, the gospel of Thomas, um, they're definitely not written by either Judas or Thomas, um, written much, much later. And if you just sit down and read one of those, um, you'll laugh. I mean, they're ridiculous. They're terrible. They're nothing like scripture. And the writings that are lost, they're just lost. We just don't have them. And, and so... We have to trust the Lord that he gave us what he wanted to give us, and, and it's enough. The other theory is that we actually do have the letter to the Laodiceans, and, and actually, I slightly lean toward this theory. Um, if you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, uh, that letter is introduced this way, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. But there are a handful of older manuscripts that, that don't have the phrase, in Ephesus, just says to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. It may be that the book of Ephesus, or book of Ephesians, um, was written as a general letter to be passed around to numerous churches. That's the way the book of James was, the book of First and Second Peter, First John. It was common. It wasn't written to a church, it was written to a group of churches. And, and that letter, which is actually very similar to Colossians, they parallel each other back and forth. Um, 
may actually have started at Laodicea and been passed around the area and very naturally would have settled in Ephesus, which was by far the biggest city and had the longest established church where Paul had taught for some time and then became known as the letter to the Ephesians. And so maybe that's what it is, but either way, it doesn't make a huge difference. What is clear is that they were to use these letters to teach and encourage one another. Paul's saying, see that when you gather, you read my letters. And it's interesting, I think verse 17, he addresses Archippus, who seems to be a a leader, a teacher in the church. And when you hear somebody ought to be a teacher in the church, you say, oh, thank goodness we have elders. Um, Yes, that's kind of the Archippus position, teaching in formal way. But in verse 16, he addresses the whole church. It's a plural collective kind of language, right? All of you make sure this letter is read among you. And all of you make sure that you read the letter from the Laodiceans. I think he has in mind both the public preaching and teaching of Scripture like we're doing right now, but also the the one-on-one among the body teaching, admonishing, exhorting one another using the Word of God. He already said as much back in Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. To be somebody in the church um, should be teaching the word, taking God's word and and admonishing and encouraging and spurring one another on. And that's that's not just a a pastor to the congregation. That's also a sheep-to-sheep thing. That's all of us. So encouraged yesterday hearing Beth talk about their women's study and a conversation on on discernment and applying biblical wisdom in different settings. Love it. That's that's music to my ears. Most of the time, um, that just means read God's word and share with others about what you're seeing, what you're learning, reminding others of biblical truth as you're comforting someone and bearing their burden with them and they're down and frustrated, you're, you're pointing them to God's word. You're pointing them to scripture, encouraging them biblically. And yes, that means, as Paul says, that first, the word of God must dwell richly in us, right? You can't give what you don't have. And so that requires us to be studying and soaking in God's word. That's one of the many reasons that that consistent personal Bible reading is so important. You don't have a plan to start your year? Now's the time. Get on it. Don't read haphazardly. Don't meander through. Get a a plan. Go to um, this website, ligonier.org slash posts slash Bible-reading-plans, or if you're, if we're honest, just Google Bible reading plan, uh, and, and ligonier.org will come up near the top. They do a great job of just collecting a whole bunch of uh, Bible reading plans, and they have everything from like through the Bible in three years, nice and slow and easy, or through the New Testament in a year to 10 chapters a day, grinding through the Bible, getting some ground covered. Um, It's fantastic. Um, But peruse through. Pick a plan that works for you and 
and go after it. Uh, it is definitely not too late to start. Who cares if you're a few days behind? You, you know, if you're lucky, you finish the plan on you know, January 9th next year. Praise the Lord. That's fantastic. Um, so encouraged this morning, talk to someone. Say, yeah, we've got a, a group of us together who are, who are reading through the Bible uh, this year chronologically, every day, keeping each other accountable. Awesome. That is fantastic. So read the word and then just share it with others. Speak God's word as it applies to the conversations you're having. Um, be encouraged by God's word and then just shoot that off in a text to a brother. Hey, praying this for you today, or hey, check this verse out. Hey, isn't this exciting? Isn't this encouraging? Hey, did you ever think this about God? Body of Christ um, has no useless parts. Every piece has its function. Every part has its, has its role to play. We should be eager to be used by God in, in serving the church, building up, strengthening the body of Christ. So, so what's your role? What are you doing? That's a benefit to those around you. Are, you. are you encouraging? Are you comforting? Are you praying? Are you teaching? Do you, use, do, you, do you even see yourself as contributing to the body? As you should. Paul closes this book then with verse 18. And he writes uh, these final words. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. It's likely that Timothy did most of the actual writing as Paul kind of dictated to him. That was often the way it was done. Um, but then for these last words, for this final greeting, Paul takes the pen to his own hand and he writes this final greeting. And he tells them two things. First, remember my chains. Remember my example, my suffering, my sacrifice. My total life dedication that I've, that I've given everything for the spread of the gospel, for the good of the church. Don't forget. As I ask you to, to roll up your sleeves and dig in and, and get involved, that I do so as a man who has sacrificed his life to do the same. Follow my example. And then grace be with you. Paul's last word, grace. The kindness of God the unmerited favor. It's the grace of God that, that unites us together as sinners, saved only by the grace of God poured out for us through the cross. That's what binds us together then as the church. And it's the grace of God that, that works in us. Only because of the grace of God and, and by the grace of God that we're able to, to serve one another. Step out and, and act on these things. I'm scared. Okay, fine. Let the grace of God be at work. Just step out. Just go for it. Trust Him. Don't look away from the cross. Don't look away from the gospel. Remember this. He's warned them sternly about legalism, about trying to do these things to earn God's favor. That's, that's not what he's talking about. He's reminding them, don't, don't obey these things. Don't, don't live these things out trying to earn something from God, but as a response to his grace. Your eyes firmly fixed on his kindness toward us in Christ. His favor that he's already given. 
It's a joyful reaction to his amazing goodness. So as you encourage and comfort and pray and teach, let it be by his grace working through you to the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this amazing book that we have had the privilege of working our way through and seeing the wonder of the cross, seeing the wonder of Christ who is supreme over all things, who's the head of the body of the church, the firstborn from the dead, seeing the, the traps of, of, of legalism and, and mysticism and, and these different things. God, help us. Help us who have been raised with Christ to new life to now walk in it, putting off sinful actions, putting off the things of the, of the darkness and putting on lives that reflect this glorious work. God, in that, help us to engage. Help us to step up to be what you've called us to be as part of the church. I pray that no believer here would see themselves as a useless part of the body. But in view of the mercies of God, would present their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you we would be quick to encourage one another to be open and, and, and transparent about your work in our lives. That we would comfort one another. We'd be quick to bear one another's burdens, to, to, to roll up our sleeves and, and, and walk through the hard times with others. To pray for one another. To really struggle in prayer for the spiritual growth of our brothers and sisters Take your word deep into our hearts and that it might be on our tongues that we would be constantly spurring one another on, lifting each other up by your word, that you would be glorified in your church. As we love one another in this way, as we grow up toward maturity, for the glory of your name, God, would you do it? As we fix our eyes on your grace, and live um, this new life as the church. God, drive us deeper. We pray in Jesus' name.